Today, there are two million descendants of French-Canadian immigrants living in New England. These are our stories. Welcome to the French-Canadian Legacy Podcast. Venez tous jeunes filles et garçons, je vais vous raconter l'histoire de notre immigration ici au USA, de grands aventuriers de pays étrangers. This is the French-Canadian Legacy Podcast. I am Jesse Martineau. Now, Mike and I have made it pretty clear right from the very beginning of the French-Canadian Legacy Podcast project that one of our primary objectives, if not the primary objective for why we exist, is to tell the Franco-American or French-Canadian-American story. So it was with great excitement that we recently learned that there is a new podcast also telling this story. Now, this podcast is called the North American Francophone Podcast, and I am happy to say the woman behind the podcast is our guest today. Claire Marie Brisson is a doctoral candidate at the University of Virginia. Her thesis topic focuses on identity, transnationality, and the edification of cultural values in French Canada in the 20th century, which is something that sounds very awesome. Obviously, we're going to have to talk about. She holds an MA in French from Wayne State University and a BA in French and secondary education from the University of Michigan. Claire Marie, welcome to the French Canadian Legacy Podcast. Thank you so much. Bonjour. Bonjour. No, before we work. I want to hear your background. So where are you from? So I grew up in Metro Detroit, but um, I my father is the son of a Canadian. So the rest of my family are pretty much based in Canada. We are more or less, we have our family just south of Quebec City, a nice little town called Saint-Fabien-du-Penne. It's close to Montmagny. Um, I also have some family in Montreal. Very cool. So that was your grand, your grandfather, was he the one who came on your dad's side, who came to the, yeah. to the yeah. Michigan area? Yeah, my grandfather actually came to the United States um, looking for work. He was a carpenter. Awesome. And, uh, and then my father was born in Detroit, but also kind of, you know, went between the border. Um, sure. We call ourselves border babies because, you know, we're about <laughs> 15 minutes from the Canadian border. Um, and then I was born in Detroit as well and, uh, you know, always had Canada just across the water, across the Detroit River. So I would go back there a lot. Yeah, so it's hard to pinpoint, am I American, am I Canadian, am I French? You know, it's, it's sure. really... Yeah, complex story. <laughs> now, how about on your mom's side? My mom's side are Irish Canadians and oh, wow. Americans. Uh, <laughs> that the metro Detroit area. So it's the the ultimate combination of you know French Canadian and Irish. Sure. Then did you grow up speaking French in the house? I did. Yeah. So we, um, I was trained in French, German, and English at home. German just because my dad studied it in school and just loved it. And then, you know, but French, obviously, for familial reasons. And, uh, and then I just kept going with it. But I didn't ever really, you know, write or read in French. It was mainly speaking it, um, oh, like many heritage speakers do. So I eventually just decided, well, I, I need to really up my grammar and things like that writing. Um, and that's what really motivated me to do my bachelor's and my master's and now my PhD in French. <laughs> that's so cool, though. So you alluded to this. You must have spent a lot of time then going back and forth across the border, like basically your entire life. Oh, yeah. And I mean, like, you know, sometimes we'd have lunch in Windsor, Ontario, which is actually to the south of Detroit. Right. Yeah. That's right. Um, so we would we would cross the border or take the tunnel and just have lunch, come back afterwards. So Canada was very much a presence in sure. my everyday life. Yeah, that's cool. And I have to confess, uh, obviously, if you saw our logo, uh, we're very New England focused here yeah. at the French Canadian Legacy Podcast. That's, that's our okay. that's <laughs> our story. I don't know a whole heck of a lot about the Midwest story, so maybe you can give me a paint a picture for me. What does the Franco-American scene look like in Metro Detroit? Is there one? What is the presence? What is it? 
Absolutely. So there, the oldest church in Detroit itself was established by the French who came there. So the word Detroit, Detroit, is the sure. mouth of the river. Um, and Cadillac, or Cadillac, as we know, the car brand, uh, founded <laughs> Detroit. I mean, there's a whole lot of, you know, sure. um, French-Canadian history in the auto industry as well, you know, with the naming. But, you know, once Detroit was founded, there was a fort. Um, there's a church. It's still, there's still the church there. It's called St. Anne's. Um, it's right on the Detroit River. It looks over Canada. Um, oh, wow. And for many years, they would have a French mass. Um, sure. There were so many French Americans and French Canadians who were living in the Metro Detroit area at one point that they still had to have, you know, multiple French speaking masses. Um, they also had a Société de Saint Jean Baptiste or Saint, sure. uh, Saint John the Baptist Society, yep. um, a very, very uh, vibrant community. Um, by the 60s or 70s, a lot of the French speakers, I mean, they, they didn't speak French as much, you know, as the sure. generations went on. But you go to, to Michigan and you'll see last names like, you know, Grou, Brisson, Bélanger, Tremblay, everywhere. Um, but they may not necessarily speak French. Okay, that sounds kind of similar to the story yeah. <laughs> here in New England. Because it was about, again, around that same time where, you know, for generations, they kept their French language heritage. And then yeah. again, around the 60s and 70s, it started to wane a bit. It's, yeah. The Franco-Ontarians across the water in Windsor, there is a community that speaks French still there. Um, and there are pockets of French speakers in Michigan, but they're not as, you know, uh, concentrated in one area as like in New England. You have some concentrations there. Sure. Now, is, do any French masses exist at all anymore? Is that a thing? You know, I would have to look into, like, you know, where they would be living. But I gotcha. know that there, are, there are people who live in Michigan. They're just more scattered. Okay. The story that we get here in New England is, you know, the whole farm to mill story. You know, they came down, they followed the railroads, that took them to a mill town that happened to be on a really big river. And that's kind of the narrative that we're told over and over again. Uh, what brought people to Detroit? Oh, that's a great question. A lot of people were farming in Detroit. So the first people who came to Detroit were doing the ribbon farms. Uh, eventually, people decide, well, you know, that's not as good. I mean, there were it was fairly profitable at one point. But then industry starts moving in. They realize that that's where the, the money is. Um, a lot of steel starts popping up in, in the Midwest. Um, and a lot of, you know, car production eventually pops up in, in the Midwest. So it moves to the wayside. It, it really, the farming kind of moves away from Metro Detroit itself. Um, there are French Canadian farmers that move to the countryside. They also work in mills, they work in carpentry, um, but then they eventually uh, just join on the bandwagon. They start working in, in the auto factories come World War II. They're, they're working on making airplanes and, and sure. munitions, but definitely kind of the same story of why they came to the area. Oh, that's cool. Now, one question I always, we've talked about, we've had an entire episode, in fact, about uh, that I always find interesting is the words people use to describe the ethnic group that we belong to. Mm. I, I've I wrote kind of a list so far that we've had people tell us. They're, they call, we, they've called themselves Franco-American. We've had French-Canadian. We've had French-Canadian-American. We've had Quebecois. We've had Quebecois-American. And a bunch just say French. So I'm curious, especially considering your family is a little bit interesting. We have a Quebec-Irish kind of thrown in there. <laughs> so how, how did your family identify kind of growing up? What are the words you use? Because I, I do think it's kind of significant what people choose as their, their identifier for their language. Yeah. Absolutely. And I, I mean, you know, when we think about the word Canada, you know, it means a, a dwelling or a collection of dwellings, you know, it, it's not even a French word. And when we think about saying French Canadian, that really didn't come to be until like the 20th century, the early 20th century. So um, in my family, my grandfather called himself French Canadian. Sure. You know, people tried to ask him, you know, well, where he'll, he'd say, well, I'm Quebecois. 
but you know I would always say that I was Canadian French and I felt like saying Canadian French and flipping it was yeah. a little bit more easy for people to understand because if I say French Canadian to somebody who's not too familiar with French Canadians they'll say oh so you're from France yeah back in you know <laughs> it's been a bit. Yeah. Moved, but um yeah so it, it was very difficult to explain to a lot of people who weren't familiar particularly once I moved from Michigan to Virginia there actually is a large French population here because of the we have a wine growing industry out here so like French from France population French from France gotcha. population um and and there were also some Acadians who moved to uh, Virginia back in the day. So those are the two real presences here. Um, so when I've said, oh, yeah, I'm French Canadian, they'd say, oh, well, what part of France? I'd say, no. <laughs> right. right. Um, but then, you know, when I've tried to use the word Quebecois, there's a lot of baggage that comes with it. Um, I wasn't born in Quebec, um, but my grandfather was. So it's very hard uh, to even say, you know, like Quebecois, French, Canadian, American. Uh, there's a lot. Um, so we usually try to just say Canadian, French. <laughs> now, in Charlottesville, is there any at all French Canadian presence? Because you know, I think it's fun. I went to school in D.C. and it was yeah. always hilarious to me. And I lived in the D.C. area, Northern Virginia, uh, Maryland, for like eight years, yeah. uh, trying to hear them try to butcher my name, which was the best. <laughs> I loved it when they take the E-A-U at the end and try to pronounce every single vowel. That was always way fun. Uh, <laughs> so there wasn't, there wasn't a lot of familiarity with French Canadians down in that area. Right. I would imagine. I, I have no idea. I've never been to Charlottesville. But is there any yeah. French Canadian presence at all there? So we're about two hours from Washington, D.C. So granted, there are some French Canadians who come through the area, especially when they're on vacation. Sure. Um, we have a lot of people who use this as a pit stop from going to, say, for example, Quebec to Florida. Right. Um, <laughs> they usually take 95, so they'll, they'll be a little <laughs> bit closer there. Um, but, you know, for French Canadians, I would say that when we have French Canadians in the area, they're affiliated with the university. Gotcha. So, you know, there, we currently have some graduate students who are French Canadian or also who are um, French speaking Ontarian. But we really don't have that I know of. I wish that I knew. Uh, we don't really have any French Canadians here that I've met. Gotcha. Now, this is cool. Now, I want to talk about again where you kind of the whole Michigan scene, because again, it's new to me. Um, and one thing, a topic that we talk about all the time here on the podcast is the concept of le survivance, mm -hmm. that it was a very, uh, it was a mission, uh, a stated mission for a long time to hold on to the language and the faith. Like those two were the two pillars among, uh, you lose the language, you lose the faith, you lose your identity. That was kind of the thought process for a long time. Did you have the surveillance in Michigan? It was it called the surveillance? Was it the same deal? Absolutely. Absolutely. So, you know, people who were going to St. Anne's in Detroit, for example, or who were coming together in other communities across the area, you know, there was the idea that, you know, you have to keep together, you have to keep the language, you have to be proud of your language, you don't, you know, you want to show that off because it's it's something that, you know, as a community, uh, everyone was very proud to say, well, yeah, I'm French Canadian. And there was that, again, up until the 60s and 70s in Michigan. And that's when I think that, you know, French started to become less and less used. And there was less and less of this idea of survival. Uh, at that point for the language with the newer generations. There was actually in some communities in Michigan, um, there were a lot of people who were actually scared to speak French simply because, you know, assimilation was was so big. Um, Metro Detroit had a lot of Polish Americans, for example. Sure, sure. They also had Middle Eastern Americans, which still the presence is very vibrant. Uh, some coming from Lebanon who spoke French and were talking with French Canadians. So kind of amazing Francophone connections there. Yeah, right. 
Um, but, you know, a lot of these people, you know, once they immigrated to Metro Detroit and worked in the auto industry were kind of, you know, no, 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 don't speak that language, speak English. Um, and that really did push some of the, the community to, to start assimilating with the language earlier on than maybe other communities did. Yeah, no, that's interesting because I know a lot of things we hear about uh, in New England. First of all, there was a, a, in the 1920s, 30s, there was a huge KKK movement in New England, mm. which very much targeted the, the French because, I mean, there was other groups. There was a ton of Irish Catholics here, but it was way easier to identify the French Catholics because they're the ones speaking French. So they right. became pretty easy targets. And for a long time, because French became synonymous with lower class mill workers, a lot of, I think my generation never learned French because my parents' generation grew up um, kind of being targeted because French yeah. equaled uh, less intelligent than everybody else. Right. French equaled low class. Like it, those were like synonymous. And it was kind of tough. I guess maybe it sounds like almost a similar thing uh, where you were. Yeah. I mean, my grandfather, when he moved to Metro Detroit, his nickname was Frenchie. His right. name was Ernest, right? Ernie. It's easy enough to say in English, but sure. many people who, that he worked with just didn't want to call him that. And, you know, he got made fun of for his accent. Um, and so he really emphasized to my father, yeah, you, you should learn French, but at the same time, please speak clear English. Gotcha. Um, you know, and that was something that my father always kind of hammered into me as well. You know, like learn your grammar, speak well, you know, and I think it's because of that. That's awesome. But the fact that they still passed it on to you is amazing. I think that's yeah, so cool. Yeah. The fact that it wasn't lost, that that the whole French we speaking fighters. didn't. What was that? We were fighters. Our family <laughs> wanted to keep keep the French. Um, but, it, you know, again, not always the case in Michigan. So I'm definitely a little bit of an anomaly in that case. Oh, that's awesome. Now, did you know that you always wanted to be a French teacher? Was that kind of always in the works? You know, that's that's a good question. I actually, for a very long time, wanted to be a lawyer, wanted to work with, uh, <laughs> yeah, I know, inter international law. I mean, growing up on the border with Canada and the U.S., right. you really, that's an everyday thing. So you think, well, yeah, I'm going to do international law. Um, but then I realized, as I was talking to more and more people, how little people knew about, you know, French in general. And I'm talking about Francophonie in general. Sure. Uh, and then, you know, French Canada. No one knew about that or French America. No, no one really talked about that. And uh, I kind of made it my mission in my master's to first explore something that a lot of people didn't know too much about, which was um, Second World War propaganda in France. Yeah. Uh, cool. And then um, I kind of moved away from that. And then I started thinking about identity in general, because when we think about propaganda, we think about how identities are in, are in confrontation and one major, you know, um, authoritarian government is trying to impose an identity. And then I thought, well, you know, how did French Canadians come up with, you know, their separate identity? And specifically, how did they manifest that in the 20th century? And surprisingly, looking at the history of Europe in the 20th century helped me to come up with that topic for my, my dissertation right now. That's awesome. Yeah. So what, why a PhD? Like what, what <laughs> even to begin with was like, you know what, I'm just going to go to school for a very long time and become a PhD. <laughs> well, I, I'm, I'm a bit of a nerd. I'm a little bit, um, <laughs> I like that. But um, I applied to the PhD for one reason. Uh, when we take a look at French departments in the U.S., they predominantly teach about France. They will teach about other French-speaking areas of the world. But for some reason, there's an aversion to talking about North America. There are some scholars who do talk about French North America or French-speaking North America, but not so much in French departments. They're mostly in history departments. Right. Um, and I said to myself, well, wait a minute, you're completely neglecting a whole region. Um, you know, and when we do talk about North America, you know, often the Acadian experience is talked about, which is very important, and Louisiana. But aside from those two areas, not really. Um, and so that's really what, what drove me to do my PhD. And hopefully I can make a little bit of a change. No, that's awesome. Now, 
I introduced your thesis during the intro. Maybe you could talk a little bit about it. What what are you, what is the story you're trying to tell? What's the argument you're trying to make? Absolutely. So elevator pitch here. I, I won't yes. make it too long. <laughs> I like it. Um, my dissertation more or less talks about French Canadians in question. So when we think about Canada pre-Confederation, there's Upper and Lower Canada, and they're yeah. fighting, they're bickering. Sure. Um, you know, the First Nations peoples are on the side, for the most part, with French speakers. Uh, a lot of communities are only speaking French and are also treated as second-class citizens. And so once Confederation happens and Canada becomes its own country, how do French Canadians or French speaking Canadians begin to envision their own collective culture? And so I look at that starting specifically at the end of the 19th century and moving into the 20th century. What are the foundational documents? How do they come together and say, this is what we're going to do. This is how we're going to identify with our language, our culture, um, maybe with a flag, uh, with our religion, and sort of the signposts of French Canadian-ness uh, in the 20th century. And some things I've found have been pretty fascinating. Um, there was a push very early on with the French Canadian communities to have their own separate flag. And that's why you have in 1948, the Fleur de Lisée in Quebec. Um, you know, when we think about Canada, we always think of the maple leaf flag, but that didn't come to be until 1964. So, you know, a lot of Canadians, Anglophone and Francophone, are very upset about being under the Union Jack um, uh, for many years. And so of they're course, trying to come up with their own ideas. Um, but French speakers really solidify this early on, like early 1900s. They're starting to think about, we need a flag. We need to have, you know, places where we can meet. And those places weren't, you know, in the federal or provincial government. It was the church. And that's yeah, why yeah. there was such an attachment to the church for so long. So I kind of look at, you know, the uh, beginnings, sort of the con conflictual nature of French Canadian culture, um, the sort of resistance nature of French Canadian culture. And then I, I kind of delve into the signposts uh, talking about making or constructing the nation um, church and then also spreading it across the country. So thinking about radio uh, as a means of solidarity for uh, French-speaking Canadians, specifically through Radio-Canada, um, bringing awesome. people together. Very cool. Now, I'm curious because you mentioned getting a your own flag, which was super important. Was there ever discussion of like an anthem? Does that ever come yeah. up? Yeah. Yeah. So there are tons of iterations of anthems. Um, there was a lot of talk about making anthems that talked about France. So talking about Mother France and how we are, you know, descended of Mother France, but we're in a new place. Um, there were plenty of anthems. I actually go into full detail and I might do an episode about this uh, of some of my archival research where I've they had a bunch of anthems. And many were based off of, you know, traditional anthems of other countries like the Marseillaise. Sure. But also some were based off of religious songs. So that's an interesting convergence between, you know, the very Catholic uh, reality, you know, some Protestants, um, but very Catholic reality of French Canadians, you know, identifying even with the music of religion. Oh, that's cool. I don't when my folks went to school, um, they went to school, one of these schools, half English, half French mm -hmm. uh, in Manchester. Um, and every day they started by singing the Canadian national anthem in French. And to this yeah. day, they can both still do it, which I think is way fun. And that was written in French first. Absolutely. But I got to spend a ton of time in New England, in fact. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's awesome. Now, I noted that in February uh, of 2019, you presented at a conference at the University of Michigan. And I wrote down the title because I thought it was pretty interesting. Uh, Desanctification of Space, the Post-Religious Landscape of Quebec. Again, the title had me intrigued. Can you tell what was this about? 
Yeah, so this was about different buildings that are being repurposed in Montreal and across Quebec at this point. Um, so if you go to um, the Centre Hospitalier or the, the hospital center of Montreal, you'll notice something pretty interesting. There's a building that's very modern, and then all of a sudden you see a church steeple on a corner connected to this very modern building. Sure. You think to yourself, why? You know, what's going on? If you go into the building, part of the church is conserved, conserved and it's a uh, gallery for art inside of the hospital. And so I looked into that, you know, how are people in Montreal and other urban areas of Quebec repurposing churches that are not used anymore? And I found some interesting results. Um, I found that some of them are actually using uh, churches for homeless shelters. Some of them are using them for skateboard parks. Wow. Some of them are using them for breweries, um, and some people are even, you know, kind of developing it, uh, developing them into lofts. So it's an interesting way to think about, you know, desanctifying space. Um, one that I found was actually fairly much uh, in in. I don't know, continuation of what the church had been for, for Quebecers, uh, which was using a church as a library. In Quebec City, they have that, you know, so you go into what was a church and then you check out books. And it was really, you know, if you think about the index of banned books, you think about the intelligentsia in Quebec, it's just a continuation of that. So in my lecture at University of Michigan, I sort of said, you know, when we repurpose these spaces, we sometimes desanctify them, but in other ways, we sort of resanctify them, right? Yeah, Continually cool. using them again for, for purposes that help outreach to the community. That's super interesting. And now we got to find a former church brewery at some point. That's going to be on the <laughs> that's going to be on the list. That sounds They're like a blast. <laughs> that's awesome. Now we did allude to Radio Canada before. And I will note you've been all over. Radio Canada, which is super cool. This is so awesome. I have to confess because I don't speak. They're all in French. They're all because French. I, I do not speak French. So I, I admit I have not listened. But how did these come about? What did you talk about on all these interviews? Because you've done a number of them, which is really neat. Yeah. So the first interviews, I was actually picked up here as a special correspondent for Charlottesville during August 11th and 12th, uh, 2017. You might remember that incident here. Sure do. Yeah. Um, so I was on television sort of discussing to French-speaking populations in Canada what was going on from the ground and, you know, giving an insight for people across Canada. Um, and then there was a little bit of a lapse. And then afterwards, one year uh, memorial, I went back on TV again and talked about, you know, how we were feeling afterwards. And then... Um, the subject matter changed towards me um, with my <laughs> new podcast. So uh, the past couple of days, I've been talking to Radio Canada, specifically in the western part of Canada, which is also interesting uh, to note. Um, I've been talking about my podcast and how it touches on parts of Canada that speak French that maybe Americans are not familiar with. So thinking of Alberta, British Columbia, Saskatchewan, things like that. And they were very excited. They introduced it and they asked me a couple of questions about it. And uh, they were very happy to hear that my thesis also also talks a little bit about Radio Canada. So that I was bet. that was pretty fun for me. <laughs> oh, that's very cool. Now, something else way fun. I saw you did a TED Talk. I did watch the TED Talk. That was way cool. Now, how did that come about that you were asked to do a TED Talk? That was fun. Well, I had, a, I had a lot of students in Detroit that were, you know, first generation students who had never gone to school before. And, you know, many of them spoke another language and or multiple languages just based on familial necessity or moving different places. And I had a student come up to me whose first language was Arabic and said to me, you know, 
you speak plural languages. And I said, oh yeah, you mean polyglot, right? That's plural languages. And she said, oh, there's a word for that. I said, yeah. <laughs> and she laughed. She said, well, I find that so interesting. You know, I would really be inspired if you talked about that. And um, just as a side note, I mean, I speak French and German fairly fluently, but I dabble in other languages. And she sure. was just really excited about that. Um, and so I talked to a couple of people who were putting on um, the TED presentation at, at Wayne State University. And um, they said, yeah, you know, actually a couple of students have already begun nominating you for this. <laughs> okay, that's interesting. So I went through with it and I talked about, you know, life is a polyglot, you know, sitting in class uh, as a kindergartner and, you know, not coming up with the word for book, coming up with the word livre and having a hard time with that. Um, and, you know, how that changes your life, how that can enrich your life, uh, how that can really, you know, be a, a door that opens to other things. And because of that, I had a couple of students in the audience at that TED Talk who then went on to major in French. And one of them, it's a pretty funny story, um, first day of class came up to me and said, you know, I don't know why there's a language requirement. I think French is the nicest sounding one of them, but this is stupid. And by the end of the semester, okay. he comes up to me and said, I'm doing a French major. I can't believe this. So it's it's the joy of language being shared. That's a win. I like that. That's very <laughs> cool. Now, one thing you brought up um, was something I'm not was not all that familiar with, uh, I have to admit, because I just speak English. I only have the one language. Um, so you mentioned the fact that you in the in the in the TED talk that you could you know speak fluent French, but you had a tough time you know writing in French. Yeah. And to me, I always take for granted because I only have the, the one that you know if I can speak it, I can write it. That's kind of like something I just kind of take for granted. But well, I guess when you have a couple different languages, and I've, you you after you mentioned it, I talked to a couple other people, and you were a hundred percent right. So maybe you could talk about that because I thought that was something unique that I hadn't heard before uh, that I since looked into. But it was super interesting because I learned it from your TED talk. Great. Well, I'm glad that I was able to open that door for you as well. Um, when you speak multiple languages, sometimes you use one for necessity, asking for things, talking to family. And, you know, if you think about the way a child acquires language, you'll pick up a teapot and you'll say, what's this? It's a teapot. I don't know how to write that yet, but I know how to say it. And the same idea is true for me with French. I spoke it a lot with my grandfather, for example, with my dad. And, you know, this was more or less, you know, familial talk, like, okay, hand me the carrot, hand me this, hand me that. And speaking like that, speaking in the family setting makes you very fluent, right? You can speak colloquially, but then when you actually want to write a letter or write a, an academic paper, what do you do? I mean, you, you start thinking and then, you know, you start trying to write it down and you think, oh, well, Ooh, I don't know how to connect that. I don't know the grammar for that because you might be using simplified forms of, say, for example, French. And I thought that this was just me. I thought, oh, this is, you know, oops, I, I didn't learn it properly. But again, uh, you know, I grew up in, in Dearborn, Michigan, which is mostly um, in my part of the, the city, Arabic uh, speakers. Sure. And a lot of my friends would say the same thing to me. You know, of course, Arabic being a much more difficult language to learn to write, they would say, oh, yeah, I can speak Arabic fluently. I can't even write it. And I said, okay, I wonder if this is prevalent with other people. So I took a little survey at Wayne State University, nothing official, but yeah. just of my colleagues in, in the language department, you know, I talked to people who were Chinese speakers, uh, German speakers, and, you know, heritage speakers. And I said, okay, so you grew up speaking this language. Why are you in these classes? Well, I don't know how to write them. I theorize that when we learn language, we can learn it while speaking it right? We can learn it with the, but we don't have the symbols, right? We don't have the symbol set in our, you know, we're not writing it down. Um, so I think there is some kind of um, learning that you have to do to get to that level. 
Um, and that's why, you know, we have writing labs, even for if you speak English, you just need to practice and train. It's like working out. No, that's cool. You also the TED Talk, you saw pictures of you hanging out in the Canadian Senate. <laughs> Maybe yeah. you got to tell us what that experience is about, because I thought that was good. Yeah. So I staffed for Senator Joan Frazier, who represents Montreal. And my main idea working with her was looking at language laws. So um, she put me right into the thick of it. Now, the Senate in Canada is uh, kind of like um, second thought or second consideration. They're not running for election. They never are running for election. They're nominated. So it's kind of a, you know, sit back, relax, and let's read things over that our members of parliament come up with. Specifically, Bill 101, the bill that talks about the right, the charter of the French language, yes. was under review at that point. And said, yeah, we'd love to have you read it in French and in English, side by side on a computer, have at it, make some notes, come to the Senate meetings and just be, be one of the staffers. And it was an internship, but it allowed me to see how some of the linguistic differences manifested themselves between the French and the English. Sometimes the French would be more, you know, powerfully written. You know, you could tell that they were invested in this. And the translation was fairly accurate, but sometimes, you know, the internal documents were a little bit better in, in French than they were in English. Um, and then I got to sit in on, on Senate meetings. I got to talk to different senators and uh, members of parliament, including Justin Trudeau. A lot of people ask me the question. Yes, I've met Justin Trudeau. <laughs> he was eating a Canadian donut, the Tim Hortons maple leaf or, or maple donut, maple glazed donut. He was <laughs> eating that. Um, so I have met him while eating a donut. But anyway, um, yeah, and it was it was a great experience. It was it gave me insights um, as to how bilingual things are as well, because my senator, although she's representing Montreal, was a native Anglophone. So she was, you know, more or less thinking in two languages all day. Gotcha. That's so awesome, especially Bill 101. Yeah, I mean, that, that's history to be able to say you worked on that. That's really cool. All right. Thank you. So we got to get to the podcast. Now, the one question I got all the time when we first started the French Canadian legacy was why start a podcast? So why did you start a podcast? The main reason I wanted to start a podcast is just to talk a little bit about Francophone issues, culture, history, and ideas to an Anglophone audience. So I wanted to mix it up a little bit too. So I will be speaking about the French American experience, the French Canadian experience, but also communities that are in the United States that are fairly new that are speaking French. So I just had an interview with a specialist of Cameroon. My awesome. next week, awesome. uh, next week's podcast is going to be talking about issues from Cameroon in Washington, D.C. So, you know, these connections where sure. you don't think about a place speaking French, speaking French, or you don't really think about something like an old cookbook or, you know, somebody playing music in another language, you know, or translating from French to English, um, but have that available for English speakers so that they can familiarize and say, oh, wow, I didn't know about the Acadians. Oh, wow, I didn't know that there would have been a cookbook in 1840 in Canada. And I did this also because I think that it's a great teaching tool. Just, you know, podcasts, I listen to them a lot. And I've learned so much from other people that, you know, I'm a big talker. And I thought, <laughs> why not share my, my joy and passion for some of the things that I encounter with other people? No, that's cool. Now, what, what's the format of the show? For people who haven't heard it, what can they expect to hear when they tune in? 
Yeah, so it's going to be sort of a mixed bag of different things. You'll hear sometimes interviews. You'll hear sometimes a translation of an archival document that I'm talking to you about. Um, sometimes I'm going to try something out from the past. For example, I cooked from an 1840 cookbook. It was an exciting experience. You'll <laughs> hear the recipes. You'll hear how crazy it was. Uh, so some of it is really, you know, me doing things hands-on. Some of it is I've discovered that someone's doing super something super interesting and I interview them. Um, and the format is it's about a 20-minute podcast. Sometimes it goes over by a couple minutes. That's cool. Did you ever think about doing it in French? Out of curiosity. No, that's a great question. And I've thought of doing it in French, but I think that there's just such a lack in English and that so many global listeners can listen in English that I'll do it in English first. But if people start asking me, hey, can you do some translations in French or can you do a couple episodes in French? Why not? That'd be great. No, no that's cool. It is something that we've talked about with uh, some of the Franco speakers, French speakers here in Manchester, maybe doing a couple of episodes for us. Because one of the things we found uh, was that we were connecting with way more people in Quebec than we thought we ever would. Because a lot of them are super interested in the Franco-American story. Because yeah. I guess a lot of them growing up, they, you know, they have that cousin who left and then you never hear about that cousin anymore. Right. right? And that's kind of the end. Yeah. Uh, so uh, we've been able to connect with a number of listeners in Quebec, but we've only been able to connect with those who speak English. So right. I think it would be kind of maybe cool to be able to have that opportunity to talk to them in French. It'd be fun. That's a great idea. Now, your first episode was something you mentioned was about cooking, which I thought it was very fun. Now, why did you choose to start there? You know, I think that everyone loves to eat and loves to share in cooking. And um, something that most people talk to me about when they're talking about cooking, because I'm, I, a lot of my friends love to cook, is they talk to me about French cuisine. And I thought, yeah, but what about French Canadian cuisine? I wondered if this existed in a way that was, you know, sort of a, a big cookbook like they're all thinking about, like the Julia Child, you know, sure. Master of the Art of French Cooking. And so I did my research. I went into the, the archives uh, online in Canada, and lo and behold, there it was. Um, the first cookbook was brought over. Uh, it was a 1739 publication from France, and then it was translated uh, for more or less for an audience in Canada. And I don't mean translated from, from French. I mean translated for the terrain gotcha. because a lot of people in France were, you know, winemakers and had a completely different climate, much nicer climate than a lot of cold, snowy days. So there are some uh, recipe guidelines that do change between the French and the Canadian cookbook. Um, and I thought it was so exciting that I, I wanted to share it with people. And I said, well, this is this is how I'm going to start the podcast. Um, and then I cooked three recipes from it. I think I'm maybe I'll cook some more. Um, <laughs> but one of the recipes I did share with um, my listeners on my social media so they can cook it themselves. And it's in English. So I tried to bring that to life for people who may not be able to speak French, may not have access to this cookbook, and may not just want to trudge through all that writing in French. <laughs> well, the one you mentioned that got me intrigued for sure was some almond nugget ice cream. Whatever that is, I want some of that because that oh, sounds yeah. just the title of it makes me excited for sure. Oh, yeah. <laughs> That's Definitely. cool. I made it. There was a rum omelet too. I had yeah. never heard of this. Rum you omelet. Sure. An, you just make an omelet, you put rum on top, flambe it. It was fantastic yeah sounds you can't kick go wrong with that that's great what i think about my french canadian heritage and kind of the food we had growing up uh, obviously it always started with pork pie that was like kind of like the big thing but we also we had salmon pie chinese pie some gratin which is always fun to try to describe to people what that was sear now did you grow up with any all of these things on your table especially during I, the holidays growing up 
Oh, yeah, I grew up with plenty of them, but I think that the main staples at my house were tourtière, so the yeah. meat pie, yeah. um, and then uh, beef stew. I mean, the beef stew was the dish that the Brisson family made all the time. Uh, and, and these daubes, as they're called, uh, were very prevalent in that cookbook, too, which is another reason I got really attached to it, because I said, that was always on my Christmas table. You know, this was something that I could identify with. Sure. Um, we also would usually have something with maple syrup. So maple syrup cookies, maple syrup ice cream, maple syrup, maple syrup. Sure. Some sugar <laughs> yeah. pie? No. Sugar no. pie, yes. Yes. <laughs> Absolutely. Once you finish the PhD and become Dr. Brisson, what is next? What is next for you? What's the plan? Um, I'm hoping to become a professor in the United States or Canada, depending on where the job market is. I really want to continue with the podcast, though. And I think that maybe if more and more people listen to it and people who are, you know, people of influence listen to it, I'd like to get involved in some way also, um, maybe with some of the embassies, if I stay in the, the uh, Washington area and talking to them about, you know, comprehending North America as not just a singular entity, but as a plurality. So talking about the Francophones that are here, talking about the First Nations that are here, um, Hispanophones, you know, all, all of these people together. So I think that I could also do some some government work like that. But more likely than not, I'd like to be a, a professor to teach this, <laughs> share this with people. Well, this is awesome. So if people want to find your podcast, and obviously everybody listening to this podcast needs to check out this uh, your podcast. No, where can where can people find your podcast? How can we get them to you? One of the easiest ways to find me is to go to my website, thefrancophone.com. I mean, that's easy peasy. That's pretty good. Yeah. Uh, but if you want to listen to me on Apple Podcasts, I'm there. Uh, I'm also on Spotify. So you would just type in the North American Francophone Podcast. Or you can find me on Twitter. I'm at the underscore Francophone. And I'm also on Facebook. It's uh, the Francophone. So it's facebook.com slash the Francophone. Awesome. We're going to make sure to link all of those things when we are in the episode. So, again, thank you, Claire Marie, for joining us. This has been way, way, way fun. I wish you a ton of success. I am so glad you're doing this. I think this is very cool. Thank you so much for the interview. This was super fun. Now our fathers look at us and sigh with despair To think that everything they love we simply do not share But the spirit never dies, our culture will survive each of us must choose how much to keep alive. Each of us must choose how much to keep alive. Special thanks to Josie Vashon for providing the music. You can find more about her at josievashon.com. This podcast was produced and edited by Mike Campbell. If you have any questions or comments, please email us at fclpodcast at gmail.com. You can also follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at fclpodcast for more information about the topics discussed. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe and leave us a review on iTunes or wherever you listen to this episode.